welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Is there a self-propagating gospel? You know, we work hard and energetically to proclaim the gospel, to gather in every soul that is willing to be drawn by the love of God. It takes a lot of input from various church family members to see a baptism take place, and we praise God for every one of them. But is there yet an untried method of soul winning, a self-propagating gospel, not merely by pushing electronic buttons, but that has such a built-in power pack that common people who believe the message can watch conversions take place? You know, if you attend church, you've heard the pleas, do more, work harder, commit yourself to win souls. After all, look at the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. Look how they go from door to door. Why don't we do more? We've all heard those kinds of appeals. In North America, the cost of each baptism is estimated at over $10,000. And of course, the eternal salvation of a soul cannot be computed in dollars. But is this what Jesus had in mind when he said, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel? Is there a more effective way to finish the great gospel commission that Jesus has given to his church? Who doesn't long for a far more efficient means of soul winning? When we read the letters in the Bible, in the New Testament, that the apostles wrote, it seems that there was very little pressure that was put upon the early Christians to become followers of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, we have a report of what was happening in terms of soul winning. And I want you to notice these words, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, I read it to you from the Good News Bible. It says, Not only did the message about the Lord go out from you throughout Macedonia and Achaia, but the news about your faith in God has gone everywhere. There is nothing then that we need to say. <laughs> what an evangelist's dream! What a church administrator's dream! There wasn't any need for high-pressure methods of garnering people into the church. And it all began at Pentecost. And Pentecost is a great big word to Christian people. Pente means 50. 50 days after Christ's resurrection. And the report is in Acts chapter 2 that the disciples met together to pray and to study, and they did this for 10 days previous 
to Pentecost, so that by the time that the day of Pentecost arrived, they were finally in total harmony and in unity. That's why it says in our scripture lesson that they were in one accord. That means unity, Acts chapter 2. And may the Lord hasten the day when his modern apostles will finally be in one accord in their understanding of the truth of the gospel. May that day be hastened. It was a great blessing that came on that day. It was a true and genuine gift of tongues. It wasn't talking in gibberish or shouting or screaming or a lot of enthusiasm or flailing of limbs. It was manifest, a gift of tongues, so that everyone from all parts of the world who were gathered in Jerusalem heard the glad tidings in his or her own language so that he could clearly understand it. And the Holy Spirit was given in a fullness that has never since been equaled. What was it about the message of Pentecost that had such tremendous power that 3,000 souls were converted? I mean, truly converted in a day. Was it something that even Paul did not as clearly articulate? Well, one wise writer, Ellen White, in Fundamentals of Christian Education, says on page 473, great truths that have lain unheeded and unseen since the day of Pentecost are to shine from God's word in their native purity. In other words, there's something about Pentecost we need to see and appreciate that we haven't seen before a self-propagating gospel that didn't require any high-pressure tactics to get people to make decisions. Is there a great truth shown, that's shown clearly on the day of Pentecost that even the apostle Paul did not preach? Yes, there is one. Speaking to that great crowd of thousands, if you'll open your Bible to Acts chapter 2, verse 36, there was a great crowd there that Peter spoke to on the day of Pentecost. Many languages, many nations were gathered. And there, Peter boldly proclaimed that they had crucified the Son of God. Here you have it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Look at Acts 3, verses 14 and 15. A few days later, Peter told them, Ye denied the Holy One and the just, and killed the prince of life. Now, there is nothing in Paul's epistles that is quite so strong. You will have to say that this is directly confrontational, isn't it? Ye denied the Holy One and just and killed the Prince of Peace. So what happened? What happened on the day of Pentecost? 
what happened, dear friends, when the cross was proclaimed and they were confronted with the fact that they had killed the Son of God. What happened was a repentance that was deeper than has not been known ever since. The murder of the Son of God is the greatest sin that was ever committed. Repentance for that sin is the greatest that the human heart can ever know. Do you think it might be possible that Peter's sermon applies it all to us today? Do you think that might be possible? You know, there is some refreshing news here in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It says in Acts 2, verse 17, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on a few. Oh, you caught me. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then verse 21. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that sounds like good news to me, doesn't it to you? Is this too good? The words all flesh, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, doesn't that surely mean everybody in the world? Doesn't that surely mean everybody in the world? How can that be true? I want you to note that Peter does not say that everybody will receive the Holy Spirit. He only says that God will give the gift of the Holy Spirit to everybody. And a gift that is not received does not deny the fact that the gift was given. Correct? The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to everybody. Jesus, I think, can help us to understand here. He says in John chapter 16, verse 7, and these are very familiar words to all of us here regarding the Holy Spirit. When he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove, and that word means convict. He will convict the world of sin. Because they believe not on me. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus helps us out here. He helps us out in John 1 verse 9. Christ was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And the ancient Jews wouldn't believe this for they thought that only they are lighted But Gentiles are also included here. And how does the Holy Spirit convict and reprove the world of sin? Ye have murdered the Son of God. Ye have murdered the Son of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to everybody in the world. The cross has been given to everybody in the world. Doesn't mean that everybody will receive it. But it has been given, nonetheless. So the Holy Spirit sheds light on every human heart. That person may not receive the light 
but in the last great judgment day, no one can accuse God of not letting some light shine upon his or her pathway, some evidence on which the soul could make a choice. In every human heart, the Holy Spirit has brought a conviction of sin by a sense of right and wrong, and blessed are those who respond to that conviction that the Holy Spirit gives. But there's another statement in Peter's sermon that arrests our attention. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, he says. And of course, that means calling upon the name of the Lord in all sincerity. We're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1-2, God pays attention to all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And here is his much more abounding grace. The same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. David says in Psalm 34, 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Do you feel sinful? Do you feel unworthy? Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe that in his mercy he will hear you. Yes, he will convict you of sin, but thank him with all of your heart. He is appealing to you on the basis of the cross. Ye have murdered the Son of God. Call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I understand that in one juvenile court not far from here, a judge slapped a severe sentence on a 14-year-old boy and his father. You see, the offense was that the boy had plotted to rob a fellow student, and he employed a 16-year-old relative to beat him up so severely that he almost died, and now this 16-year-old is crippled for life. And shocked by this cruelty and lack of remorse that the assailant showed, the judge ordered the 14-year-old boy and his father to pay $590,000 in restitution funds to that victim's family for their medical expenses. I wonder, can we gather any warmth out of this cold story? Well, if you are either a student or a parent, you can thank heaven that you don't have to pay $590,000 debt hanging over the head of of your life. Can't you thank God for that? But we learn that parents are held responsible for the follies and for the crimes of their juvenile offsprings. And if you have been spared this anguish, you can rejoice in your good fortune. Now, the beatings and the torture that were inflicted on Jesus Christ left him crippled for life. I mean, if he could have survived the cross. If Jesus had survived the cross, the beatings and the torture beforehand would have crippled him for life, right? A righteous judge could order all who were involved in that crime to pay restitution for life and for eternity. The truth is that all humanity were involved in that crime against Christ.
And when Peter at Pentecost charged the crime on his hearers, he was including you and me. He was including us. You can read there in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and that's you and me, and the people of Israel, that's the Jews, were gathered together against the Son of God. That includes all of us, doesn't it? We're all guilty of those crimes that were committed against Christ. And Peter said, You denied the Holy One and the just and killed the Prince of Life. Now, were we there personally? No. No. But neither was the father of this 14-year-old criminal in that high school in a court system near us. And yet, that father was ordered to pay for his son $590,000. That tells us that even our court systems understand the shared responsibility of guilt. Corporate guilt. And so do we. We share a corporate guilt with those who crucified the Son of God. Their crime was the revelation of the world's crime before God. Our Creator sends His Son out to save us from ourselves. He sends His Son out to save us from our Holocaust. He sends His Son to save us from our two sons. And we murder Him. And what happened at the cross was the world's judgment. The world's moment of truth. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that heaven will not bring us to this truth of judgment today in these last days. The Holy Spirit will convict us that we are murderers of the Son of God. You and me, including the whole world of sin. Now the juvenile court system was in no mood to let this 14-year-old boy and his father off the hook. And if the father is already a millionaire, then this judgment of $590,000 would just be a mere pinprick. But if not, then he has a very lifelong burden to carry of paying down this debt. He can never get, it, get himself out of debt. Ask yourself, what debt do we carry for life? What debt do we carry for life? Well... It is, to, it is a lifelong debt, a debt, it is a debt of love. Dear friends, it is a lifelong debt of repentance, is what it is. Not just one time, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, but a lifelong debt of repentance. And let us thank heaven that we're forgiven. Let us thank heaven for that. And God grant us a sense of our obligation that's imposed upon us that we are forgiven. Not, not by craven fear, but by thankfulness, by gratitude. Somehow this is related, I think, to a proper definition of what faith is. On the day of Pentecost, there was a marvelous outpouring of God's Holy Spirit 
It was likened to an early rain that waters freshly planted crops. And ever since, followers of Jesus have longed to see a similar outpouring, which Scripture says will be the latter rain. In other words, the Holy Spirit that ripens the grain to be ready for the harvest, which is, as we understand it, the second coming of Christ, correct? So the latter rain has been expected by God's people for well over 150 years. And for decades, there have been millions who have looked forward to the latter rain around the world who have been praying for it every morning when they wake up in their devotionals at six or so in the morning. Can we who want it learn something from the history of the early rain? Well, after over three years of teaching by Jesus, the disciples, after his death and burial and resurrection and ascension to heaven, were ready to be with one accord in one place. They were finally ready to be in unity, in harmony. All of their individual desires for promotion were finally laid aside. Self was finally crucified with Christ so that their sinful pride was humbled in the dust. Not one of them was seeking the highest place in the early church. Each one was ready to wash the feet of the other. They were not praying for power so that they could be vindicated before the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees or to be self-exalted triumphantly they were praying for something new. They were praying for the gift of God's love, agape. And in fact, they had just begun to understand what love is. They had finally received a sobering lesson. They had seen agape in the self-emptying sacrifice of Christ. And that brings us to number seven like a burst of lightning on a dark night or the sun shining at full strength at midnight, they had come face to face with the reality of what it cost their Savior to save them. The Lamb of God had died the wages of sin. He had poured out his soul unto death, which the apostles clearly understood was the whole world's second death. Christ had suffered the horrors of hell to save it. And death and hell could not hold the divine one who had made this supreme sacrifice of agape. And now self had to be crucified together with Christ. When they surveyed the wondrous cross on which they had seen the prince of glory die, their richest gain, they counted loss and they poured contempt on all of their pride, is there any lesson for us here in the early reign? Any lesson? In studying about Pentecost, the lesson for us who are awaiting the latter reign, I think, is very sharply focused. The early reign was not some kind of a miracle of very articulate preachers, that wrought such a great work upon the hearts of thousands of people. The early reign was not some dynamic preacher. 
working on hearts of people. I don't think Peter showed off his brilliance at Pentecost, do you? The miracle of tongues was only secondary, only secondary to something greater than itself. If those apostles, if Peter had given great lectures on Roman history, miraculously speaking in tongues, nobody would have been baptized. If those apostles had given great lectures on the synthesized meaning of all of human history, it wouldn't have convicted one heart and no one would have been baptized. Amen? The day of Pentecost was marked by the glorious proclamation of the life and the death and the resurrection and the inauguration of their high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And the truth of agape compelled those multitudes to respond 3,000 in one day. Paul says that the message went to all of the world in that first generation of Christ's followers. And now what will mark the ending of that ministry? If the proclamation of the message marked its beginning, it is reasonable to conclude that again the proclamation of the message will mark its ending. This was the former reign. Today, we await the latter reign. That self-propagating gospel at Pentecost accompanied Christ's beginning work in heaven as high priest. And now his closing work in the cosmic day of atonement will be accompanied by a fully developed everlasting gospel that will lighten the earth with glory. This same cross-exalting motivation will fuel that final burst of soul winning. Yes, it's just what John the Revelator saw there in, John, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. The call will be accompanied by a second time in history power. The first came at Pentecost. Ellen White in vision witnessed what will happen the second time around. In early writings, page 278, she says, the light that was shed upon the waiting ones penetrated everywhere, and those in the churches who had any light obeyed the call. A compelling power moved the honest, the honest in heart, servants of God endowed with power from on high, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, went forth to proclaim the message from heaven Souls were scattered all through the religious bodies, answered to the call, and the precious were hurried out of the doomed churches as Lot was hurried out of Sodom before her destruction. The same writer tells how the first Pentecost relates to the second. In this citation, a work is to be accomplished in the earth, similar to that which took place at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
in the days of the early disciples when they preached, when they preached Jesus and him crucified. Many will be converted in a day, for the message will go with power. The theme that attracts the heart of the sinner is Christ and him crucified. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus stands revealed to the world in unparalleled love. Agape. Present him thus to the hungering multitudes, and the light of his love will win men from darkness to light, from transgression to obedience and true holiness. Beholding Jesus upon the cross of Calvary arouses the conscience to the heinous character of sin as nothing else can do. She's describing the latter rain, folks. It's a message. It meets exactly the heart longing of every honest-hearted soul in Babylon. And I'll tell you, there are many honest hearts in Babylon so that, as the great controversy on page 612 says, the truth is seen in its clearness, and the honest children of God sever the bands which have held them. See, honest ones in Babylon, family connections, church relations are powerless to stay them now. Truth is more precious than all besides Notwithstanding the agencies combined against the truth, a large number will take their stand upon the Lord's side. Great controversy, 612. Revelation says, the book of Revelation says that the proclamation of the hour of his judgment is come, is going to grow so that it will lighten the earth with his glory. It's due now, I think it's due now to penetrate Islam. Do now to penetrate Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and all of the Christian faiths. Taking part in that great movement will, be, will make life worth living, won't it? It will be a self-propagating gospel. Not long ago, a survey was made by church to discover what each convert cost an evangelistic expense, and it was estimated it costs to baptize one soul over $10,000. And many churches are declining in membership. And in North America, attendance at worship services often declines year by year. And in Britain, churches are being sold, and they are remodeled into business offices or homes or monuments to evangelism future. But in contrast, the gospel proclamation in New Testament times was phenomenal. The message went like fire in the stubble. Every new convert became an energized evangelist. Himself, herself was an effective conveyor of the message to others just for the sheer love of it. For example... Paul writes to one church, not only did the message about the Lord go out from you throughout Macedonia and Achaia, but the news about your faith in God has gone everywhere. There's nothing then that we need to say, says Paul. 
it caught the believer's heart, and they just went out and they did it, natural. And Paul said, we didn't have to do much after that. And while it's true that many did reject the gospel as it went out, it met precisely the needs of the hearts of honest people who seemed to come out of the woodwork just everywhere. And this stark historical reality today is usually brushed off by people saying, well, that's unrepeatable. That phenomenon won't happen again. It was a once-in-history thing. Times are different now. We're living where social issues are completely different than they were then. What they did back then can't be repeated. But the Bible promises a last-day gospel proclamation that's going to be even greater in scope and success than Pentecost. The earth is to be lighted with His glory, a message that will have within itself self-propagating power. This message will never be finished by electronics. It will be finished by one heart reaching another heart with the love of God and the cross. There, I said it. I can't believe I said it. God's people 2,000 years ago were not different than honest-hearted people are today. The missing ingredient today is not human personality. The missing ingredient today is not organizational efficiency. What is missing is the lost content of the message itself. The Apostles' Gospel was a self-propagating message because it proclaimed the good news about the cross of Christ and what he accomplished by his sacrifice. That was the message. The news itself constrained those who heard it and believed it. Perhaps you think that the switch in your house turns on the electricity. Wrong. Your electricity is turned on at the powerhouse and it's flooding your house and the wires that are running all over your house. It's ready to run your stove, it's ready to run your furnace, it's ready to run your light and your vacuum cleaner and your whatever for 24 hours, 24-7 every day of the week. It's the switch that turns it off at the wall. Otherwise, your lights would be on all of the time because the power is there, correct? Unless you get one of these storms and PG&E can't keep the power going into your house. But you understand the illustration. And likewise, folks, your decision to follow Christ is not what turns on Jesus' salvation for you because he has already given you the gift of his salvation. The powerhouse is sending it to you already before you turn on the switch before you believe. And that's what John 3.16 is saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Turn on the switch. For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The gift of salvation is given 
If it's not received, it's not God's fault. It has been given. And it doesn't diminish the fact that it is a gift. Unbelief doesn't cancel out the gift. But one can hinder the gift in their life by failing to receive it, and that is to be thankful for it. It's your unbelief that turns off the lights. And the message that was sent to us in our history is better good news than we have been in the habit of ever thinking of. Our salvation is 100% due to God's initiative and not to our own in any way. And when we are singing around the throne of glory, Mount Zion, uh, the song of Moses and the Lamb, it's not going to be, Oh, Lord, thank you for 99% saving me and for the 1% you helped me to do. We're not going to be singing that kind of song. It's going to be all 100% due to him. But we let him save us. We can see and appreciate the cross of Christ. We can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift is seeing the cross and receiving the gift of repentance. And it's a daily deepening repentance. And we stop turning off the switch. Desire of Ages 403. The blessing of salvation are for every soul. Uh, the blessings of salvation are for every soul. Nothing but his own choice can prevent any man from becoming a partaker of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Take your hand off the switch, will you? And leave the lights on 24-7. <laughs> Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.